So with that, why don't we turn to our first session now in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9. And as we begin, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn there if you have them handy. And at last year's Fall Bible Conference, if you recall and you were here, we studied the three main chapters on Christian living by God's grace, namely Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8. So we thought that the logical sequence would be for this year to cover chapters 9, 10, and 11 in our Pastor Teacher Missionaries Conference, and then in our All Believers Conference this year to cover Romans chapters 12 through 16. But the book of Romans is a marvelous and majestic epistle of the Apostle Paul. I think in God's providence, it's placed first in the list of Pauline epistles. In the book of Romans, Paul sets forth his theology of grace from beginning to end in 16 chapters, systematically for the saints in Rome. And Romans 9, 10, and 11 deals with two very important themes Namely, Israel, of course, as a nation, but also the righteousness of God. And if we want to understand the righteousness of God as displayed through the nation of Israel, as well as through the church, we need to study Romans 9 through 16. And these chapters reveal that God isn't done with the chosen nation of Israel. Though they are largely in unbelief towards God, he still has a plan for them in the future. He still has promises to fulfill. And in the meantime, he is largely working through the church, made up mostly of Gentiles in this dispensation of grace. And so in his dispensational plan, we're going to see in chapters 9, 10, and 11 that Israel and the church are still distinct. God has two separate plans for them. And this morning, in this first session, I not only would like to teach verses 1 through 13 of chapter 9, but also kind of set the table for the next several sessions as we work systematically through chapters 9, 10, and 11, starting with the context of this section of Romans that we're going to study. What is the context and the whole point of this section? The theme of the book of Romans throughout chapters 1 through 16 is the righteousness of God. In fact, the term for righteousness occurs 63 times throughout the book. Whether it is the term dikaiosune, which is translated righteousness or justification, or whether it's the verb form dikaiazo, translated justify, or whether it's the adjective form dikaios, translated righteous or a righteous one. And so the book of Romans deals with this theme of the righteousness of God, the righteousness that God is, the righteousness that man lacks by nature, and the righteousness that God graciously provides through Jesus Christ to all who put their trust in him. Whether it is for our justification, as we see in chapters 3 through 5, or our sanctification, as we see in chapters 6 through 8, or glorification, the end of chapter 8. So there's a logical progression through this book of Romans. And you see that even on your book chart provided at the beginning of your packet here. But when we come to chapters 9 through 11, we see that the theme is still the righteousness of God on display. But now it's through the nation of Israel primarily. 
So why was this section of chapters 9, 10, and 11 written? Well, this morning we're going to look at some differences in systems of thought or doctrine between, for example, dispensationalism and covenant theology, between Calvinism and a non-Calvinistic perspective. And yet, I don't want you to miss the main point of Romans 9, 10, and 11. In fact, all of the book of Romans. And that is, the righteous character of God is set forth for us. But in addition to righteousness, we also see his faithfulness. We see his knowledge or wisdom, that he's an all-knowing God. He knows the future. Every choice that we make, he foreknows. We see his power and omnipotence on display in moving nations, and even individuals. We see his judgment or his justice. We see his long-suffering, his love or hesed, the Hebrew term for his loyal covenant love towards the nation of Israel. We see his grace. We see his mercy. And all this is not hyperbole, dear saints. For in fact, every one of those words I just mentioned are found in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And of course, the sovereignty of God is there as well, by implication, very strongly. And that's why this section in Romans chapter 11 ends with a doxology of praise to God. And I just want to say this, if after two days of verse-by-verse exposition working through these central chapters on Israel we don't come away with a greater perspective of who God is and his character so that he's worthy to be praised and that it's all through Jesus Christ, then we've missed something. Let's not miss this main point, dear saints, as we go into great detail of our verse-by-verse expositions. Now, a second point that we need to understand regarding chapters 9, 10, and 11 is that this section demonstrates God's righteousness by explaining how he will uphold his word to the nation Israel despite its present state of unbelief. And I had you open by turning to Romans chapter 9. Let's look at verse 6 actually to begin with, and then we'll go verse by verse through this section. But verse 6 says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel. It is not as though the word of God has taken no effect. We see the emphasis on the word of God here. Also, verse 14, notice what it says. What then shall we say? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. We see that the character of God is in question by some as to whether or not his word will be fulfilled, his promises. And so it's helpful to know that as far as the historical context of when and why Romans was written, that it was written, of course, to the church in Rome, at this point comprised mainly of Gentiles. In fact, he says twice in the epistle that he's writing to you Gentiles in 113 and in chapter 15, verse 13, I believe. But there had been saved Jews in Rome as well, and still were. But increasingly, by the time Romans is written, about 57 AD, the church is comprised in its complexion more and more of Gentiles and less and less of Jews. And that certainly has been the case down through church history. So with that thought in mind, I'm very glad that the Lord, in his foresight, 
knew that this question about Israel needed to be addressed and gave three chapters to do so in great detail. You see, Paul sought to answer here in Romans 9, 10, and 11 questions as to whether the Jews as God's chosen people were still his chosen people as a nation. And why, God, do you seem to be working more through Gentiles today if Israel is your chosen people? Do you have a plan yet for the nation? Have your promises and your word failed? If so, then has your character failed? Are you still righteous? Are you done with Israel? Has Israel been replaced by the church? These are all questions that this section is going to answer. Now, when it says in verse 6 that his, it, is it as though his word has taken no effect, the Greek word there is ekpipto, which could be literally in a compound form, mean to fall out. But the idea is more so to fall so as to fail. And there is an Old Testament concept that is mentioned several times in Scripture about the word of God going forth and not falling to the ground so as to fail, which becomes a, a picture for us of God failing in his promises, if that were the case. You see several passages where this is mentioned. Here's one, 1 Samuel 3.19, where it says of the prophet Samuel that he grew, and the Lord was with him, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. Why? Because Samuel's word was the word of of God. And so God is still righteous, verse 14. His word hasn't failed, and I think that's a central argument of this section in 9, 10, and 11. Let's not miss that. And this also ties into what Paul had said earlier in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where again he frames the argument for the righteousness of God in this book. In verse 1 he says, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God, the very word of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar. Those who would accuse God will actually be found to be liars and God be vindicated. That's why the verse goes on to say, and as it is written that you may be justified, dikaiazo, declared righteous. Just like sinners are declared righteous. Guess what? God is declared righteous. Not because he was a sinner who became a saint, obviously. He was sinless all along. But he's declared to be righteous. That your words will justify you. In your words you may be justified and you may overcome when you are judged, i.e. by men. And so that's what's at stake here in this section on Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's also important that we understand the main thought of these three chapters. In chapter 9, he's dealing with Israel's past election by God's sovereign will. And moving ahead in tense and time, chapter 10 deals primarily with Israel's present rejection of God due to their unbelief in Jesus Christ and the gospel. And chapter 11 deals with his future restoration of Israel and his plan for them at Christ's return. And so there's a logical progression through these three chapters 
Just as there has been throughout the book of Romans when it comes to just condemnation, justification, sanctification, glorification, this is a very logical book. In fact, one of the easiest to create a book chart for, like you have in your packet. Now, Romans 9 through 11 is also written to show that Israel's present unbelief and failure is really not God's fault. But in fact, it's Israel's. Now, how do we explain Israel's present state of apostasy and rebellion and unbelief? Is that God's fault? Did he not impute to them, infuse them with faith as individual elect people? Is that the problem? No, that's not the issue at stake here. Rather, it is the volitional choice of Israel not to believe. So God is not unrighteous. But Israel is, and it needs the righteousness of Christ. And we're going to see at the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10 more on that issue. A second point here, as far as why Romans 9 through 11 is also written, is so that Israel being set aside, we see, is only partial. It's not total. Even in the present age, there is a remnant of believing Jews, which are like a... Um, guarantee, so to speak, or a, a picture that God is still at work with Israel, and it's true, in the future, there will be far more Jews saved, and God will work through them. We've been blessed in the past and thankful to have uh, a Jewish saint among us teaching, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who wasn't able to be here this year, but he represents part of that remnant the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through whom God is still working because they are believers in their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. A third point we see here from Romans 9 through 11 is that it's also written to show Israel being set aside today is only temporary in the plan of God since God's promises to Israel will still be fulfilled. Does God still have a plan for Israel? Have you read the book of Revelation, chapter 7, the 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, sealed, the two witnesses, etc.? Another chapter deals with his plan for Israel in the book of Revelation. Israel as Israel still very much is part of God's plan. And then, we haven't even mentioned the future kingdom. So God is not done with Israel, though it may seem like it in the present but some will object, based on this broad overview of chapters 9 through 11, that I didn't say anything yet to this point, really, about individuals being chosen or elected to eternal salvation. Isn't that the main point, especially of chapter 9, some will argue? Well, where do individual Israelites fit in? Do they have a place in Romans 9? We shall see. But I do believe at this point we need to clarify that this chapter has been greatly misinterpreted, in my opinion, down through the centuries, due to tradition. You know, as a Roman Catholic growing up, I was taught that when Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I was handed a set of eyeglasses from Roman Catholic tradition that said this rock is in reference to Peter himself and the papacy that supposedly extended from Peter. 
which again is another huge assumption that's false. But that's how I viewed Matthew 16, 18. And it was hard for me to get that out of my head when I started to read Scripture and eventually got saved. Looking back on it now, it's pretty clear that's not what that passage was teaching. The church is built on Jesus Christ. But in a similar way, I think it's very true today that for many, reading Romans 9 is difficult because they've been handed this set of Calvinistic and covenant theology glasses that views it in this light as primarily dealing with individual election that is unconditional to eternal salvation. And this system of thought has extended all the way back 500 years or so to the time of John Calvin at least. We know that he was influenced by Augustine as well with his very deterministic view of soteriology. But if you're not familiar here with Calvinism, it's been summarized by the tulip, speaking of total depravity. And by that, they mean that man is so inherently depraved that even his will is not possible to be exercised positively in its volition towards Jesus Christ so as to choose to believe in him. So that God actually has to in, impute faith and change the will all on his own, they call that monergism, to those whom he has unconditionally elected in the past. To, to those who are non-elect, that he doesn't give the gift of faith to, they stay in their depravity and their unwillingness and inability to believe, and they are eternally lost. So from their definition, total depravity, in essence, means total inability to believe. Whereas I think the scriptures teach that yes, God's grace draws men, God makes it possible for all men to believe, but they must choose to believe of their own volition. Likewise, the tulip teaches unconditional election, limited atonement, and this is where many Calvinists uh, jump ship and say, well, I'm not a five-point Calvinist. I don't believe that Jesus only died for the elect. He died for the whole world. That would be limited atonement. His death was limited in its benefits and application just to the elect. Irresistible grace teaches that God irresistibly draws people to faith in Jesus Christ if you're one of the elect. And perseverance of the saints teaches that if you're one of the elect to whom God has given the gift of faith, you will endure in faith and good works to the very end of your life. If you don't, you were never truly one of the elect and you're not really saved and haven't been for your entire Christian life. So in essence, it backloads the gospel with works still, rather than faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. So that's, in essence, the system of Calvinism, dealing primarily with soteriology. But about a, within the next century or so after Calvin, there developed another system of thought known as covenant theology, which says that mankind, at least since about Abraham, at least, um, there has been a covenant of grace. Some go as far back as Adam. But prior to that, they say that there was a covenant of redemption in eternity past where God chose to send the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ was willing to do that, to be the Lamb of God, to die for the sins of the world. Now that concept is biblical, but again, I don't necessarily see that that was a covenant. The term covenant is not used of that divine eternal plan. But then they teach that beginning with Adam, God told him in the garden, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, he ate. 
He violated that. He didn't uphold the covenant of works. So God then instituted a covenant of grace in its place. And by the way, traditionally, the covenant of grace has been defined not only as requiring faith in Jesus Christ, but also obedience as the proof that you really have believed for eternal life. Now, the reason I bring this up is because not only Calvinism, since the days of John Calvin in the 1500s, but the, the covenant system of theology in the 1600s, these two systems have been around for four or five hundred years. They have a long head start before dispensationalism became popular in the 18 and 1900s, and of course, which we hold to even today. And so this system of, of viewing Romans 9 has been in place for a long time. Now here is a chart from one who holds to covenant theology showing the covenant of works with Adam at the beginning in the garden. Adam fails. God institutes a covenant of grace, supposedly. You see works and you see grace there. But what's so interesting is that under the umbrella of a covenant of grace, with the church beginning all the way back in Genesis and extending all the way past the present age where supposedly we're in a spiritual form of the kingdom to the return of Jesus Christ, to the great white throne judgment, we're all under this covenant of grace, supposedly, which scripture never specifically talks about, by the way. But notice where they place the church all the way back in Genesis. It's also conspicuous that the Mosaic Covenant, if you look on the bottom there, right before the cross, the Mosaic Covenant is under the umbrella of grace as well. And doesn't the Bible actually teach that law and grace are two distinct economies and they don't mix? That the Mosaic Law ended at Calvary when the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom? And yet they're all placed under a covenant of grace. So this system has some inherent problems. And one of the biggest problems it has is that it mixes the church with Israel, just like it mixes law and grace. In fact, this system teaches that the church is the new Israel. And this affects how Romans 9 is interpreted. Now, how has Calvinism and covenant theology missed the main point? The main point of Romans 9 through 11. Well, the effect has been that these chapters then become about individual unconditional election to eternal salvation rather than God's dispensational plan for the nation of Israel versus the church, the nation of Israel as Israel. In fact, this has also led to the Protestant teaching of many of replacement theology, also known as supersessionism, in which the church supersedes Israel and becomes the new Israel, a broad people of God, so to speak. And the distinction between Israel and the church gets washed out. And so I think Romans 9 through 11, based on these two systems of thought, becomes misinterpreted. Everything is askew from the beginning. And here's a reflection of this in one popular Calvinist covenant writer named James White. He says in his book, The Potter's Freedom, regarding Romans 9, he says, two truths immediately come to our attention. First, God determined who was and who was not a child of promise. This is all God's work. 
Secondly, Paul is speaking of the salvation of individuals. But the key is this. Paul is not talking about nations. He is talking about God's sovereign election in salvation. For it was God's sovereign or God's right and freedom to limit his promise to the children of promise and not to anyone else. So you can see he's clearly saying this is not about nations. This is about individuals. And the issue is election to eternal salvation. Now here's a quote from the original Calvinist himself, John Calvin. I say that tongue-in-cheek, but even that's debatable because he got a lot of his theology, of course, from Augustine. But here's what he says in his commentary on Romans. He says, I extend the word Israel to all the people of God, according to this meaning. When the Gentiles shall come in, the Jews also shall return from their defection to the obedience of faith, and thus shall be completed the salvation of the whole Israel of God, which must be gathered from both. The same manner of speaking we find in Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God, is what he calls the church, gathered alike from Jews and Gentiles. So you see clearly he's calling the church there the Israel of God. Here's a more contemporary example from O. Palmer Robertson in his book, The Israel of God. He says, in the end, the full number of those who are saved coming in from both the Jewish and Gentile communities will constitute the final Israel of God. Again, he makes the church and Israel one and the same. You say, well, what consequence does this have not only for our interpretation of Romans 9, 10, and 11, but our doctrine and practical application. Well, here's one chief example of this. In his commentary on Romans, Thomas Schreiner, again, another ardent Calvinist, five-point Calvinist, and non-dispensational, he says this regarding the olive tree illustration in Romans 11. The necessity of continuing in the faith is hammered home in the closing words in verse 22. If you remain in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. This threat cannot be dismissed as an idle one. Paul often warns his readers of the necessity of continuing in the faith in order to be saved. One should never conclude from Paul's teaching on divine election that he downplayed the necessity of human beings continuing to exercise faith in order to obtain eschatological, or i.e. final, salvation. So in other words, dear saints, your eternal destiny is at stake. You will be cut out of the olive tree, he says. God's plan of salvation, that's his view of it. If you do not continue in the faith, and he views that passage as a warning to that effect. And why? Because he doesn't view Romans 9, 10, and 11, dealing primarily with the nation of Israel, not for eternal salvation, but for God's dispensational plan, plan of blessing to the world. And so it's interpreted as being primarily for the individual and primarily dealing with unconditional election to eternal life. In contrast to this, dispensationalism understands a distinction between Israel and the church and law and grace. But we know that because Israel is an unbelief and has been since the time of Christ, largely, that the nation of Israel is in a holding pattern and has been for some 2,000 years. But God will still fulfill his plan and purposes for this nation. In fact, according to the prophecy of Daniel 9, 24 to 27, Daniel's 70th week, 
the tribulation period of seven years, God will once again turn to the nation of Israel after the church has been raptured during that time of tribulation. And that's why in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, that time of tribulation is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Not the church's trouble, but Jacob's trouble. Because Jacob, of course, was the original name for the nation of Israel before God changed Jacob's name to Israel and the 12 tribes descended from him. That's why, according to a dispensational understanding of where Israel fits, Israel still has a place. During this church age, it's been temporarily set aside, as Romans 11 will explain, but they as a nation will turn to Jesus Christ in the tribulation in great numbers. And God still has a plan for them, thus, as a nation. And thus, just like Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 32, we need to distinguish between the Jew, the Gentile, and the church of God. The church is comprised of all Jews and Gentiles who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but the distinction between Jew and Gentile ethnically is not wiped out, nor in God's sovereign plan for them as a nation. And thus, Romans 9 through 11 is primarily about Israel, not the church. And again, not about the question of individual election to eternal salvation. I like what uh, Brother George Gunn writes, who was here a few years ago for our conference. He says this regarding Romans 11 and the olive tree illustration. He says three parts of this olive tree are distinguished from each other. Number one, the branches. They represent national Israel. Number two, olive shoots grafted in from a wild tree representing most of us believing Gentiles. And number three, the root or lower portion of the tree, representing the position of privilege and administrative responsibility into which God places his mediatorial representatives on the earth. Who are his mediatorial representatives in the present time? You and me, the church. Privileged to be in that olive tree to receive blessings from the Lord. But if we don't continue in faith, God can take us out of that place of privileged blessing, not lose our salvation, and he can turn again and use the natural branches, namely the Jews. And he will, just as his promises declare he will. Now all of this tells us that we must be always reforming in our thinking. In fact, Romans 12, verse 2 makes it very clear that we need to daily renew our minds with the Word of God. And the reason I bring this up is because Semper Reformanda has become a slogan ever since the time of the Reformation and is often stated by those who hold to Reformed and Covenant theology. And yet when it comes to biblical prophecy, when it comes to Romans 9, 10, and 11, there is often not an always reforming approach. And this should be true of us, even as dispensationalists. What do we hold as the rule of faith, all faith and practice for us? The Word of God. Not even our system of dispensationalism. Now we believe the Bible teaches that. But is it in need of refinement? Always? Of course. And so we are subject not to a system, but to the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. Now a fourth point we need to come to grips with here is that the main point and emphasis of Romans 9 through 11 is not the justification or spiritual salvation of individual Jews and Gentiles, but the sovereign, righteous, corporate 
plan of God for national Israel. It's corporate and it's national, not individual. And he's done dealing with justification at this point. Now in Romans 1 through 8, Paul uses the word, and here's several supports for this conclusion. He uses the word Jews or, or Jew nine times in contrast to Gentiles. And then when we get to the section of Romans 9 through 11, 1 through 8, he only uses it nine times. 9 through 11, he switches to a broader national term, Israelite. And he uses that term 14 times. And as you study the book of Romans, this conspicuous change jumps out at you. And I think he's referring back then to God's plan for Israel as a nation, going back especially to the patriarchs. That's why he uses Israelite. Likewise, corporate and national words and concepts are found at least 40 times. Israel or Israelite, 14. Nation, twice. People, in reference to a people group, six times. Jew or Jewish, two times. Greek or Gentiles, eight times. And then individual names are mentioned eight times, but they're always of national representatives, such as Moses for Israel and Pharaoh for Egypt. Likewise, we see that progenitors of nations are mentioned in this section of Romans 9, 8 through 19, such as Abraham and Sarah, who had a son Isaac. And then Isaac married Rebekah, and she's mentioned. And they had a son, Jacob, and he's mentioned. And then we see later that Esau was mentioned. He was the progenitor of the nation of the Edomites who descended. Now, oftentimes when people who are Calvinist or Covenant theology look at chapter 9, they make the argument that individuals are mentioned, of course, so it's not all about corporate national Israel. And they point out these individual names that are mentioned here. But what they fail to reckon with is that each one of these names is restricted to one who helped form the head of nations, not just to any old Israelite. Why isn't Joshua mentioned? Or Samuel? Or Solomon? Or Elisha? Or Ezra? Or other prominent Israelites throughout their history? It is only the progenitors of nations who are mentioned here as individuals. For we know from the book of Genesis that God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And Abraham was married to Sarah, through whom eventually he would have a son, Isaac, and that son would give birth to, or have a, a child, namely Jacob, and from Jacob would come the 12 tribes. But branching off from that were those who were descendants of Abraham who were not part of the covenant plan, not heirs of the promise. So, for example, with Hagar, he had Ishmael, and God blessed the Ishmaelites. And with his later wife, Keturah, he had six sons, one of which was Midian. And who was one of Midian's descendants? Jethro, who later met up with Moses. And Moses married Jethro's daughter, the book of Exodus says. So Jethro was a believer, but he was outside the line of Israel or Jacob. And so these represent two different or I should say, all these individuals represent the nation of Israel as a nation. 
In fact, later in this passage in Romans 9, verse 12, Genesis 25, 23 forms the backdrop for this and is individually mentioned. It says in Genesis 25, 23, And the Lord said to her, and in the context of Genesis 25, uh, this is, uh, whose wife is this? Who's, who's her in the context? Abraham and Sarah. It's not Sarah. Sarah's deceased. So this is Isaac and Rebekah. They're going to have two sons, Jacob and Esau. And these two sons are basically going to be in a boxing match within the womb. Feels like they're fighting and, and there's a, a royal rumble in the jungle going on in there, right? But notice what it says. Two nations are in your womb. When she inquires of the Lord, why? I mean, this is not a normal pregnancy. Normally you feel the baby kick and, you know, elbow here and a foot here. It was like there was a fight going on all the time. And by the way, this continued on outside the womb too. But two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Who was the older? Who came out first? Esau, not Jacob. Let's take a note of that going forward here. Now also, as I mentioned, in Romans 9, 8 through 19, there are national representatives mentioned. Moses is mentioned by name, but he's a, not a king of Israel, but he is the prophetic representative for the nation. In fact, doesn't he intercede for Israel to be delivered from God's judgment following the Mount Sinai rebellion where they committed idolatry and Moses wasn't even down with the Ten Commandments yet? And then Pharaoh, of course, represents Egypt. And the reason I bring this up is because these two individuals, Moses and Pharaoh, are not set forth as examples of how God elects some for heaven and others for hell, but rather how he deals with nations through their leadership. And even later on in Romans 9, 19 through 21, He's going to use the example of the potter with the clay. And this comes from Jeremiah chapter 18. And when you look at Jeremiah 18 in its context, you'll see it's dealing with the nation of Israel and Judah. Again, he's not dealing with eternal salvation of individuals and the issue of unconditional election. That's been imposed on the passage. Now here's a fourth key point regarding the context of Romans 9 through 11 is that when we go to chapter 11 and look at verse 28, we see that it contrasts election and the gospel, showing that unconditional election in these three chapters is, again, not to individual salvation, but to Israel's privileged national position of service as his representatives to bless the world. And what does that verse say? Towards the end of this section, Paul says in 11.28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. In other words, most Jews have not only rejected the gospel, but they continually hounded Paul. You read the book of Acts, it's amazing that this guy is still alive. Clearly it was the sovereign plan of God to keep this guy going. To go on preaching the gospel from town to town to town. And they could not kill him, though they tried many times. But despite their animosity towards Paul, what was his heart posture towards them? Did he hate them like they hated him? No. He had the love of Christ for them. 
truly amazing. That's why he says, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Now notice the contrast between enemies and beloved and gospel and election. Just as the gospel deals with individual salvation, and yet it's contrasted with election, thus the word election here, as it's used throughout 9, 10, and 11, is always referring to national Israel and their place as the channel of blessing to the world, not to individual election and eternal salvation. So if the gospel is about salvation, and it's said in contrast to election, then election in Romans 9 through 11 is not about individual salvation again. Do you see the point? I think it's really clear. Here's a fifth point. That if Romans 9, 6 through 23 is about individual election to salvation, as we're taught by many Calvinists, then this must mean that God does not will that all unbelieving Israelites be saved. That's how they interpret 9, 14 through 18. In contrast to Paul, who in chapter 9, 1 through 3 and 10, 1, says clearly his heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. If the Calvinist presupposition is true, then this would mean that Paul's desire for Israel's salvation and prayer to God for that is either wrong in 9, 1 through 3 and 10, 1, or it means that he's greater than God in his desire. Both of which options are entirely problematic. Yes, God does, does desire that all men be saved. And the problem is not that he hasn't unconditionally chosen them in eternity past to individual salvation. The problem is Israel has resisted in unbelief, believing the gospel. So I ask you, is Paul more loving than God? Did Paul have a greater desire for Israel's salvation than God? That is a huge problem for Calvinism. Now, why does Paul refer to Israel's salvation then in certain passages like 927, 10.1, 10.9, 10.13, and 11.26, if that's not his main point? Well, again, his point is, and he's stated this already in Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29, that not all who claim to be Jews are Jews inwardly. They haven't had a circumcision of the heart. They've never been born again. And so when God wants to fulfill his eternal plan in the tribulation and kingdom, and he turns back to the nation again, who's he going to turn to? Unbelieving Jews? No, believing Jews. So there still is a necessity for them to be born again and to believe and to those who both are believers and ethnic Jews, he still will fulfill his promises to them as a nation. Now, having seen that overview of chapters 9 through 11, let's begin looking now verse by verse through verses 1 through 13. And we'll move more quickly through this section. Let's read together verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Just like the Lord Jesus, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In what sense? Not for himself, but for others, thinking of their destiny. He had joy when it comes to the will of God, and so did Paul. It's fruit of the Spirit. 
But towards others, he was continually grieved. Verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. We see here that Paul had a great evangelistic burden for his fellow Israelites. He desired that they be saved. And you know whose heart he had in all of this? He had the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19, verse 41 says that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But what was the problem? But you were not willing. And in that one verse, we see divine sovereignty and human responsibility in perfect balance. God was willing to save Jerusalem and its inhabitants. The problem was Jerusalem wasn't willing to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now why does Paul say in verse 3 here, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, and that you might even think I'm not telling the truth about this. Well, we know it's not possible for anyone to be cut off from the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, how did chapter 8 end, verses 38 and 39? With the promise of our eternal security in Christ, no matter what comes in the future or the present, angelic or human or any created thing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And isn't it interesting that right on the heels of that great promise of eternal security for individual salvation, he then transfers his thought to the destiny of the Jews and the nation of Israel. And I think his thinking is triggered here by the unconditional covenant promises to the nation of Israel. Like in Jeremiah 31, where the Lord in essence says, if heaven and earth should pass away, then my promises to you as a nation will pass away. And by the way, the preservation of the people of Israel and even the nation today, isn't that proof that God always upholds his promises and he still has a plan for Israel? And he will not let them perish as a nation? And that's proof to us again when it comes to individual salvation. We're eternally secure and he will fulfill his word. Israel is proof of that. So Paul says here, not that I will be cut off from Christ or accursed, but I could wish myself such, because it technically can't happen. Now going on in verses 4 and 5, we see God's blessings towards Israel. Verse 4, Who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. And when he speaks of Christ, he can't help but offer a blessing to God, who is overall the eternally blessed God. Amen. Speaking of the deity of Christ. First of all, we see the adoption here. Was Israel adopted by God? Yes, it was, as a nation. In Exodus 4, verse 22 and 23, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel, my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go. Moses was to say to Pharaoh on God's behalf. Israel was God's son in his thinking. The adoption. Also, the glory is mentioned here, and I believe this is in reference to the Shekinah glory. What other nation had God traveling with them through their journeys? The pillar of fire, and then in the tabernacle. The glory of God filling that. What a privilege to have that. And you know what, dear believer? 
For you and me today, we are said to have the, that presence of God tabernacling with us as well in the third person of the Trinity indwelling us as believers. <laughs> that is mind-blowing. What a privilege of God's grace. And then the covenants are mentioned here. And I think he's referring here to the Abrahamic covenant, which is foundational to the other unconditional covenants. The land covenant of Deuteronomy 30. The Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. And the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 and other passages. And for time's sake, I'm going to skip over this chart. I believe these are going to be ultimately fulfilled in the coming kingdom, the millennial phase of the kingdom, when Christ returns to the earth. He also mentions the law here. This is in reference, I believe, not only to the Ten Commandments, but to all 613 commandments in the law, the Pentateuch. As the law we know had a moral side to it, it had a ceremonial and a civil aspect as well, all which formed the economy of living for the nation of Israel. They lived under law, given at Mount Sinai. And then we see the tabernacle mentioned here. I believe this is in reference to the temple service, all of which was designed to picture God and his holiness, Jesus Christ in the offerings, and the approach to God and fellowship through Jesus Christ, all designed to prepare them for the coming of Messiah. And then the promises are mentioned here, and though there's no one promise emphasized, Israel had hundreds, perhaps thousands of promises as a nation, to live by, by faith, on a daily basis. Showing that the God they trusted and served, just like our God, is a promise-keeping God. And then he mentions the fathers here. I believe this is in reference to the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in particular. And last of all, he mentions the Messiah. The eternally blessed one, our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, technically, there's a ninth blessing that's mentioned in Romans. It's not part of this list of eight here in chapter 9. Because we already read in chapter 3 of Romans that the oracles of God, the very word of God, the scriptures were given to the nation of Israel to pass on to the world as well. And all of this sets forth for us this principle, that to whom much is given, much will be required. Luke 12, verse 48. Israel as a nation was blessed more than any other nation in history. And yet with that blessing came a responsibility. That's why I like what uh, Brother George Gunn says in another place about this. He says, it should be noted that while some of these nine features touch on soteriological themes, they're not all soteriological in nature. It is better to view these nine features as administrative, i.e. dispensational advantages for Israel. They describe the administrative privileges given to national Israel as God's appointed mediatorial agent in the world. This introduces the theme of chapters 9 through 11 as an administrative, dispensational theme, not a soteriological one. To that, George, if you were here, I'd say, Amen. Now, did God in Israel's day still or did Israel in Paul's day still possess these blessings? And the answer to that is yes. Now, those who hold to covenant theology would say no. That blessing's been transferred to the church. The new Israel of God, they say. But I think it's true even from Scripture 
that all these are blessings for Israel as Israel. Now, the Greek text here is not explicit that all eight of these blessings in Romans 9.4 are present tense, but verse 4 does use a present tense being verb, asin, where it says, who are Israelites, and then to whom all the other blessings are mentioned. And the implication is clear that this is still true of Israel. He doesn't say, who were Israelites, but now they're cut off because of their unbelief. And by the way, there is another passage in the New Testament that clearly says the Israelites are still sons of the covenant, even though they're in unbelief. And this was in Acts 3, verse 25, after they had rejected their Messiah and he was crucified. So God's promises and program for Israel is not over, even after they crucified the Messiah. And what does this imply about Israel and the church? that Israel has not replaced the church. They are distinct. Supersessionism is not true. Unlike, again, what people are teaching today, one prominent teacher of this view, who is a great Hebrew scholar, and I'm thankful for that, is Bruce Walke. And this is what he had to say. As the obverse side of the New Testament coin bears the hard imprint that no clear passage teaches the restoration of national Israel. Its reverse side is imprinted with the hard fact that national Israel and its law have been permanently replaced by the church and the new covenant. The Jewish nation no longer has a place as the special people of God. That place has been taken by the Christian community which fulfills God's purpose for Israel. Dear friends, that's replacement theology. Sad historical footnote, Bruce Walke was raised in a Sunday school class in one of the churches whose pastor is here today. And he actually was a dispensationalist for many years and fell away from grace back to law and covenant theology. Very sad. But in terms of the past unconditional election of the nation in Romans 9, 1 through 13, we see a second point here, and that is the reason for citing God's choice of Isaac over Ishmael, as we'll see in verses 9, or chapter 9, 6 through 9, was to show that God sovereignly chose who would inherit the promises and blessings of the Abrahamic covenant based solely on his will, not man's. And this passage thus is not teaching that God chose Isaac and all his descendants to be saved while choosing Ishmael and all his descendants to be eternally lost. Let's go on, verse 9. It says here, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, literally that it has fallen. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now why is this restriction to certain descendants of Abraham mentioned here, like, like Ishmael? Well, it's not, again, to show that Ishmael was eternally lost and all his descendants. 
but rather it is to show that God and his sovereign will can choose who he wants as a nation to work through. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, five times in that covenant, he says to Abraham, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Nothing about what Abraham chose in that instance. It was unilateral from God towards Abraham. Likewise, in Deuteronomy 7, where the nation of Israel is reminded why God chose them, he says, I picked you in grace, not because of your worthiness. You weren't greater than the other nations, and I was so impressed that I said, wow, I just got to use them. Well, in that case, he should have picked Egypt, right? They were the most powerful. God says, no, I'm going to choose a weak nation, a small nation, through whom I can show my glory in an even greater way, even against the greatest nation in the world at that time. And so it says he set his love upon them. And the emphasis there in Deuteronomy 7 is the choice of God upon Israel, not Israel's choice of God, vice versa. Now, just as Israel being God's chosen nation doesn't mean all Israelites are saved, in the same way Ishmael and his descendants not being God's chosen nation doesn't mean that they're all lost eternally and that they can't be saved. In fact, according to this passage, Genesis 17, 18 through 20, remember Abraham wanted Ishmael to be the heir of the covenant. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you, he says to God. God says, oh no, it's not going to work that way. I'm going to choose a descendant from Sarah, your own seed through her, and you'll call his name Isaac, and with him I'm going to establish my covenant for an everlasting covenant. But as for Ishmael, he and all his descendants can go to hell. That's how a lot of people interpret Romans 9. And that is not what it's saying. In fact, he blessed Ishmael and his descendants. Just like through Abraham's later wife, Keturah, through whom he had six sons, remember? One of which was Midian. And who was one of Midian's descendants? Jethro, who later met up with Moses and gave his daughter to Moses to marry. And Jethro was a believer. So Romans 9 is not after the point that God is predetermining who's going to go to heaven and who's going to go to hell. And I say all that to prepare us again for verses 10 through 13, which let's read at this time. It says, verse 10, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said of her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people interpret these verses as a proof text for God predetermining who goes to heaven and who goes to hell unconditionally. In fact, let's listen to John Calvin again. He says, by predestination we mean the eternal decree of God by which he determined with himself whatever he wished to happen with regard to every man. All are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. And accordingly, as each has been created for one or the other of these ends, we say that he has been predestinated to life or to death. Later he says in his institutes, another place, 
since the disposition of all things is in the hands of God, and he can give life or death at his pleasure, he dispenses and ordains by his judgment that some from their mother's womb are destined irrevocably to eternal death. Why? In order to glorify his name in their perdition. This is a gross misreading of Romans 9, dear saints. I think a, a, a great dispensational Bible teacher of the past, Harry Ironside, had it right. He writes in his book on Romans, What a tremendous amount of needless controversy has raged about these verses, i.e. 9:11, chapter 9, 11 through 13. Yet how plain and simple they are, viewed in the light of God's dispensational dealings. There is no question here about predestination to heaven or reprobation to hell. In fact, eternal issues do not really come in throughout this chapter. We are not told here, nor anywhere else, that before children are born, it is God's purpose to send one to heaven and another to hell. The passage has to do entirely with privilege here on earth. Very well said. Now in Romans 9 through chapter 9, verses 10 through 12, this these verses illustrate God's plan to unconditionally elect. That's true. It is about unconditional election, but not of individuals, but of nations. Not to eternal salvation, but as to who would be the channel of blessing to the world as mediators and administratively. And God chose to elect one over the other because he had nations in mind. As the heirs of the Abrahamic covenant as we've seen all along. Now in Romans 9, verse 12, why is Esau's service to Jacob a problem for those who say this passage is about individuals being eternally, unconditionally elected to salvation? Well, I say this because in the passage, verse 12 again, it was said of her, the older shall serve the younger. Do you realize that as you study the Old Testament, at no time, in either Jacob or Esau's lives, those two brothers, at no time does Genesis record that Esau ever served Jacob. It was always the other way around. So if this is in reference to individuals, and again, eternal salvation, how is this passage true? It can't be, unless it's talking about their descendants, the nations that came from them as in fact the nation of Edom came from Esau and the Israelites came from Jacob. And we will see this throughout these passages of the Old Testament. Here's one verse, 2 Samuel 8, verse 14, where it says of King David that he also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. He went into enemy territory and he put his garrisons there. And all the Edomites became David's servants. That's how that passage was fulfilled, not in Jacob and Esau's day. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And so again, this is national here. So what have we seen so far regarding verses 7 through 13? We've seen, number one, that Abraham wanted Ishmael to be his heir to the covenant promises. But at that point, God overrode Abraham's will and said, no, no, it's not going to work that way. I am going to choose your heir. It's going to be Isaac rather than Ishmael. And you'll have Isaac through Sarah. And she's mentioned here in chapter 9. Likewise, Rebekah 
had a favorite son. She wanted Jacob to be the heir and receive the blessing from Jacob, remember? The problem was that Jacob favored his older son, you know, who liked to go hunting and fishing and play football, and he was the captain of the Israeli football team. He was a, he was a man's man, right? He'd bring home good game to cook for his dad. And then you had Isaac with the apron on, helping mom in the kitchen, and he said, that is not going to be the heir to the covenant. That other boy, Jacob, mama's boy. But God said, no, I'm going to override your will, Jacob. Man's ways are not my ways. In fact, this whole custom and law of primogeniture, throw it out the window. I've got my own plan. And so, God picks all the way down the line. That's the point of the passage. The covenant heirs were God's choice, not the patriarchs. And though the word sovereignty isn't used here, it's clearly on display, isn't it? That attribute of God. Now, regarding verse 13 here, as it is written, and he quotes from Malachi chapter 1, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. This verse, again, has been very confusing to a lot of people, and it has been used as a proof text to support the doctrine of unconditional election to heaven or to hell. In fact, the reference here in verse 13 to God's hatred of Esau does not mean God predestined Esau to hell. For in fact, it was written 1,500 years after the descent of the nations of Israel and Edom. Again, Israel came from Jacob, Edom came from Esau. And this again is a proof text used for this doctrine. Here is R.C. Sproul, who's now deceased, but when he was alive, he wrote this. It is manifestly obvious that if some people are elect and some are not elect, then predestination has two sides to it. It is not enough to speak of Jacob. We must also consider Esau. Unless predestination is universal, either to universal election or universal reprobation, it must be double in some sense. Now, there are moderate Calvinists who say, well, I do believe God unconditionally elects people to go to heaven, but the opposite side of that coin is not necessarily true. It doesn't mean he elects some to go to hell. In fact, what they often say is he just leaves them in their lost condition to inherit their destiny. And he doesn't pour out his grace on them, which he could have, but he's chosen not to in his sovereign purposes. That's their thinking. And so they would deny what's called double predestination or this doctrine of reprobation. But you know, I, before I was even saved as a kid growing up, came to understand the illogic of that thinking. In our neighborhood, we had pickup football games quite frequently, especially this time of year, often with older boys in the neighborhood who were dominant, who could hurt me. And they were often captains of teams, and there'd be 12 of us there, and we would, they would pick teams, right, going down the line. So you'd have two captains, and they'd say, oh, we want this guy, and Johnson, and Smith, and Williams, and da 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 And then there's Stiegel at the end. Whose team is he going to be on? I was the leftover a few times, right? The runt. And I came to learn that just because I was not chosen didn't mean I wasn't rejected. And the same is true when it comes to eternal salvation. If God could have unconditionally chosen some to go to heaven, but he chose not to, that's still a choice, right? 
And by the way, going back to this passage in Malachi chapter 1, if we read it in its context, it says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord to Israel. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Israel was objecting at that time. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? And yet I didn't choose him. Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. When was Malachi written? Some, usually most scholars say, about 400 to 425 B.C. When did Jacob and Esau live? About 1800 B.C. So we're talking 14, 1500 years difference. And so when God says this in Malachi, and it's quoted in Romans 9.13, God is saying it in retrospect, looking back on 1,500 years of Esau's descendants being perennial adversaries of Israel. That's why he says, I have hated Esau. It's not because he was consigning them to hell before they were even born. So this passage has been greatly misinterpreted. Now, what can we learn from all this as far as main takeaways this morning? From this passage, number one, the importance of rightly dividing the word of truth, not imposing one system of theology onto the text. That's called eisegesis. We must be servants of the word of God, subject to it, put ourselves under it, and have this over us all the time. Not even necessarily our system of interpretation though we are dispensationalists here. Secondly, we can learn that of all people to understand God's grace, shouldn't the nation of Israel had appreciated and latched on to grace? They had been under law for 1,500 years. And when grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, they should have been starving and thirsting for it. And by the way, 2,000 years of living under the dispensation of grace, we should appreciate grace as well. Here's the third principle, that to whom much is given, much will be required. Israel was blessed beyond measure, and yet they had forsaken their advantages and their responsibility to the world. Fourthly, we see here the sovereignty and wisdom of God, that he and his sovereignty can choose as he wills. And he's not subject to what any one man wants or groups of people. He is still in control. And his plan to use Israel is unfolding right on time. None of this, in terms of their rejection and unbelief, caught God by surprise. And fifthly, we see here that God's word never fails. His word will be fulfilled. Not one word will go forth from his mouth and fall to the ground unfulfilled. That means he's still righteous. And dear saints, that means he's still trustworthy. That's the essence of Romans 9. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word today. I know we've looked at a lot of information and covered a lot of ground here. But thank you that it is clear that you are sovereign, you are wise, you are trustworthy, and you are righteous. We pray that we would just come away from these expositions now with a greater understanding of who you are in your character and in your works and for the righteousness you provide us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this now in his 
blessed and precious name. Amen.